Luke 15, verses 11 to the end. Jesus went on to say, There was once a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to him, Father, give me a share of my property now. So the man divided his property between his two sons. And after a few days, the younger son said to him, said, sold his part of the property and left home with the money. And he went to a country far away where he wasted his money in reckless living. And he spent everything he had. And then a severe famine spread over that country and he was left without a thing. So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him out to his farm to take care of the pigs. And he wished he could fill himself with the bean pods that the pigs ate. But no one gave him anything to eat. And at last he came to his senses And said, all my father's hired workers have more than they can eat. And here I am about to starve. And I will get up and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son Treat me as one of your hired workers. And so he got up and started back to his father. He was still a long way from home when his father saw him. And his heart was filled with pity. And he ran and threw his arms around his son and kissed him. Father! The son said, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. But the father called his servants. Hurry, he said. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Then go and get the prize calf and kill it. And let us celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. And so the feasting began. In the meantime, the elder son was out in the field. And on his way back, when he came close to the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come back home, the servant answered, and your father has killed the prize calf because he got him back safe and sound. And the elder brother was so angry that he would not go into the house. So his father came out and begged him to come. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have worked for you like a slave, 
and I have never disobeyed your orders. And what have you given me? Not even a goat for me to have a feast with my friends. But this son of yours wastes all your property on prostitutes. And when he comes back home, you kill the prized calf for him. My son, the father answered, you are always here with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be happy because your brother was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. Amen. There are a few stories in the whole of the New Testament that illustrate the heart of God better than the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal or the wasteful son. The parable appears here in Luke's Gospel, although it is preceded by two other parables aimed at revealing the heart of God. The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Only the parable of the lost sheep is reproduced in Matthew's Gospel, where the ending is rather more abbreviated than the one in Luke's Gospel. The beginning of the chapter tells us that Jesus was speaking to an audience of predominantly tax collectors, or publicani, as the Romans called them, and other outcasts. And these were probably a range of slaves, prostitutes, the very poor and the chronically sick, many of whom would have been beggars. And these outcasts were the people who had been unable or perhaps unwilling to keep the harsh demands of the law. And they were therefore viewed with disdain by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the religious zealots of their day. They saw Jesus' appeal to the unworthy, to this unworthy class of individual, as a negative point. They were seen as people who were not worth the bother of preaching to them. They were beyond either redemption or reform. And Jesus was seen as somehow contaminated by them. They were expected to make him dirty rather than he make them clean. Consequently, the Pharisees had become, in their own eyes at least, the moral guardians of the Jewish people. They needed to be protected from this contaminated rabbi and his tendency to mix with dubious company. So Jesus responded by telling this sequence of parables that revealed God's thoughts about these deprived 
and poverty-stricken individuals. The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin are rather similar. Most people in first century Palestine kept some kind of livestock and their homes invariably had space for animals in a dedicated area of the house. So the experience of losing a sheep or indeed a goat, a cow, a donkey or a camel would have been a familiar experience to most people. And the story emphasises the impulse to leave the safe and secure sheep unattended and to focus on the rescuing of the lost sheep. A quite instinctive reaction. This was a determined hit at the Pharisees whose natural inclination was to separate the righteous from the unrighteous, the moral from the immoral, and the rich from the poor. And then they expended all of their energies on the rich and the influential. The idea of building bridges rather than walls was completely foreign to them. And the second story follows. It's the story of a woman who loses a coin. And the woman invariably held on to the purse strings in most Jewish households. And her concern is so overwhelming that she is unable to focus on anything until the coin is found again. So she does not rest until she has found the coin. And in both cases, the person who had lost their property put on a celebration when they have found the sheep or the coin. This then becomes a refrain that comes at the end of all three of the parables. I'm a bit of a fan of the television programme Time Team. You might have guessed that, mind you. It was fronted by Tony Robinson of Black Adafane. And in each episode, the team was given a task to unearth the reality behind a rumoured a rumored Roman villa, a mysterious piece of wall, a church, or a castle, or even just a mysterious set of uneven humps and bumps in a field. They were given just three days to perform an archaeological dig in order to find out what had happened there many years before. And they were able to put a date to many of these discoveries by collecting the fragments of pottery or coins or even the metal remains from ancient weapons and to use them to determine what period the associated buildings and structures were built and used. These possibly treasured possessions had originally been lost, broken and perhaps thrown away. 
by their original owners, who may well have spent some time searching for them. The fact that the time team found these things after hundreds and sometimes thousands of years only illustrates that they weren't altogether successful in searching for them. The fact that the time team found these things a hundred years, I've said that bit, are losing me place, I must be getting old. Our modern day archaeology would have been greatly impoverished if this had not been the case. And the very great range of such things in almost every museum across the land only serves to emphasise that such searching was only successful on a quite small minority of occasions. So finding them really did deserve some celebration. The things that we lose often cause us great anguish especially when the missing item is endowed with a sentimental value. People often say, don't they, I would rather give it away than just lose it. Of course they would. And all this emotion lurks behind the basic comment. Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep, coin, son, that I had lost. The purposes behind both of these parables was to establish a picture of God who never ever gave up on people, be they prince or pauper. If they were lost, then he would seek them out with no reservations or time limits. He would prioritise them over everything else because of his love. And all this took place in a world where God was usually seen as demanding rather than caring. Where he was seen as a God whose displeasure appeared when we failed to meet his standards. It was a message that the Pharisees hated because it destroyed their sense of privilege as the chosen people of God. And the poor and the needy and the outcasts, on the other hand, loved the message because it told them that God's heart was far, far bigger than they had ever dared to believe. But there was more. And to make that more clearer, Jesus needed to tell a third parable. And there are three characters in this parable. Two of them are brothers and the third is their father. The younger son is seen as the wayward one. He is the one with itchy feet. He is the one with the desire to travel and see the world. He is the one who is repulsed by the thoughts of spending his whole life working on his father's farm. However safe and secure that might be. He wants freedom to go his own way. To follow his own star. 
to seek his own fortune. And so he comes to his father and asks for his share of the inheritance. Now, this wasn't 50%. This was only 33 and a third percent of his inheritance. Of all of the ancient civilizations, the Jewish one was the only one with any kind of provision for a form of retirement. It was done by a provision in the law where the eldest son of each family was charged with the responsibility to look after his parents in their old age. And this was done by dividing the estate at the time that the parents chose, so that the eldest son received a double portion of the divided estate. So if there were two children, then the estate was divided by three. But then two of the portions were given to the eldest son in order to equip him with the means to look after his elderly parents in their declining years. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, we read this. Jesus answered, And why do you disobey God's command and follow your own teaching? For God said, Respect your father and your mother, and whoever curses his father or his mother is to be put to death. But you teach that if a person has got something that he could use to help his father or mother, but says, Corban, he does not need to honour his father. Mm. Here, Jesus is criticising the Jews, who evaded this provision by declaring some or all of that provision as Corban, that is, dedicated to God. And then they use this provision to avoid fulfilling their obligations to look after their elderly family. You could call it a form of a first century tax avoidance scheme. The younger son can bear it no longer. So he goes to his father and demands his portion now. His father could have simply said no, but he didn't. There are some lessons in life which can only be learned the hard way. And that is by experiencing the trouble and the pain involved. The love of the father is showing even at this early stage. Now, if the father was lucky, then he mightn't be able to find the cash equivalent of the younger son's portion. But if not, he may have to sell off something in order to fulfill his son's desire. And any of you who own a house or shares in a company will appreciate that getting hold of the cash value of these assets is neither a quick nor easy task. Hey, are you see, Steve, that's exactly what we were talking about before. From the perspective of the younger son, however, 
He has just won the lottery. It's interesting that lottery winners often do not benefit as much as they would like from their win. They often become reckless as sums of money with the word million in it always sound unimaginably large and they then treat it as infinite. And lottery winners have a track record where after as little as five years their huge windfall is all spent with remarkably little to show for it. And so it was with the younger son. And of course the biblical phrase that we usually associate with the younger son is riotous living. Another category, sorry, another characteristic of lottery winners is how quickly word gets out. And how crooks and charlatans of every imaginable type gather round him like wasps around a jam pot. And they each have a plausible sounding scheme that is designed to relieve him of as much of his cash as is possible. And within a very short time the money dribbles away until he suddenly becomes aware that the infinite riches have suddenly become very finite. You may remember Bernie Madoff with his scandal that created a pyramid that was completely unreal and everybody was ripped off at every level. You would have thought the clue was in the name, Madoff. In our story, he clearly, catastrophically loses everything and finds himself feeding fit pigs to survive. Now, these pigs were considered unclean by the Jews. And to add to his ignominy, these pigs were better fed than he was. And from this bad place that he was in, he began to realise that his father's servants were also better treated than he was. And he therefore devised a plan to return home to see if he could persuade his father to employ him as one of the family servants. It's remarkable that he was feeling so humiliated that he was prepared to face his father and the loss of face that his return would mean. The second character in our story is the eldest son. And on the face of it, the eldest son looks like a little bit like a goody two-shoes. He didn't rebel. He stayed at home. He worked hard. And once his brother has left, was assured that he would inherit everything that he surveyed. Not for him the risks and uncertainties of foreign travel. Not for him all that wine, women and song. He would always keep the rules. Always make responsible decisions. And always remain righteous. But 
And there's always a but. The story reveals that his love and loyalty were, in fact, only skin deep. When his brother returns, he is scandalised. And he doesn't possess his father's overwhelming compassion. And the bitterness rises up uncontrollably. His father kills the fatted calf for his brother. His fatted calf! He puts a ring on his brother's finger. His ring! He puts a coat around him. His coat! So he waits outside, sulking, waiting, hoping that somebody, preferably his father, notices. It's a feature of sulky people that they spend considerable amounts of time waiting for people to notice that they are unhappy. Whereas the rest of us often don't. (laughs) Eventually, his father becomes aware of the situation and he goes outside to see his son. And then the venom and the bitterness built up over many years bursts out like water through a broken dam. You never gave me a fatted calf so I could make merry with my friends. He complains. What the story reveals is that like so many marriages these days, you don't need to go anywhere to drift apart. The elder son's heart was as far from his father as was the heart of his brother. The father had two wayward sons, not one. And each needed to learn how to love in their different contexts. I wonder, do we sometimes resent those who seem to be walking with God better than we are? Even though they were only saved just a couple of years ago. Yvonne was a drug addict. She had dabbled in witchcraft and was familiar with the police and the court systems for all the wrong reasons. She was converted and began attending a church and very quickly she had a magnificent testimony. One day she spoke to her minister and asked, Why did God allow me go through all the horrors in my life before he saved me? Whereas you were saved when you were a teenager and you managed to avoid most of the pitfalls of life. She was jealous of his apparently easier life. And his reply was this. He said, Yvonne, I would give my back teeth for a testimony like yours. 
But you don't get a testimony like yours without some degree of suffering. You see, it was all too easy for Yvonne to look at others and to imagine that their lot in life was somehow superior to their own. Our God tailors our lives to match our background, our skills and our strengths. His love is the same in every case, but that love can be seen in a unique way in each of us. And he treats each of us with that same uniqueness. The third character in our story is God, the Father. And there are no prizes for guessing that he represents God. The almost unbelievable generosity to both of his sons is precisely the point of the story. If our understanding of God's love doesn't feel too good to be true, then we don't understand it properly. The father was generous to his younger son when he left and also when he returned. He clearly never wanted the younger son to leave, but he wasn't going to stop him going. He was perhaps bracing himself for the elder son to also leave as well. But that request never came. So the scripture tells us that he waited, anticipating his younger son's return. Children often don't appreciate that in their brave act of rebellion or defiance, all they're really doing is repeating a mistake that their parents made a generation before. And the lady came to her minister one day. She wanted to know why her children were so self-willed, so opinionated, so defiant, and so cheeky. And he listened to her. And then he reflected for a moment. And then he said, Strong-willed parents don't breed weak-willed children. The curse laid on us, those of us who have been parents, is watching ourselves grow up all over again. It's nauseating. It really is. Not that any of this stops us loving them, because that will never go away. And so the father watched and waited for his son's return. We're not told how long he had to wait, as in a sense that was of no consequence in any case. But he clearly had a plan. He knew what he was going to do, and what's more, he didn't share his longing or his plan with the other son. He just watched and waited. And after what must have been a long time, he spotted a familiar figure coming down the road. 
and Operation Restoration was put into action. The younger son had come with a prepared speech. You see, he too was like, just like his father. He made plans. But his father ignored it. The father was deliriously happy that his son had returned and he had the fatted calf killed and he gave him a coat and a ring and all the signs that he was being welcomed back into the family. Forget the plan about being a servant. He belonged there. As a picture of the heart of God, this parable is unmatched anywhere in the New Testament. There is no saying sorry in this parable. There is an attempt at groveling, but it's ignored. The Gospels seem to be setting out to scandalise those who want always to contain forgiveness behind a wall of conditions. They say things like, you must be really, really sorry. You must grovel and constantly feel bad about what you've done. You must do penance until we decide that you're forgiven. We can never really trust you ever again. You must repent in such a manner and at such a time as we can all see you do it. So we can gloat. (laughs) And in contrast, the gospel writers reveal how the generous heart of God is ready always to seek us out and is ready to forgive us again and again and again. That heart appears to a Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar. It appears to a tax collector up a tree in Jericho. It appears to a prostitute caught in adultery at the temple courts at Jerusalem. I hasten to add the temple was where the court was, not where the prostitution was. Where the Pharisees tried to get Jesus to condone her stoning. And supremely it appears on the cross at Calvary. When a thief is told, today you will be with me in paradise. Even after the resurrection, both Paul, Peter and The denier and Thomas, the doubter, are graced with a special visitation to reassure them that they are both loved and forgiven still. And no doubt, and this bit's a touch controversial, Judas Iscariot would have received one too had he not committed suicide. And each event reinforces the reality that God's love is more than enough 
to deal with any amount of our wrongdoing or failure. And all that is required of us is a desire to return home and believe in the love that will not let us go. Amen.